When I'm negotiating with people, I tend to think about what the other guy wants, how he might behave as a consequence of what he wants. This is the analytical part, I think. It's complicated, it's extremely fluid, but I tend to start from there. What do you want out of this? And I try to walk back to how you're going to behave to achieve what you want. In this episode, I'm not telling you the story of a radical invention or the crazy idea that became a business. Rather, I'm telling you the everyday founding story of an incremental innovation in an already established market and the singular, even more important, decision-making steps where even a rational, risk-adverse founder uses intuition to turn his idea around into a sustainable business. Thank you for being here and support me grow. It means the world to me. Are you ready to finally crack the subconscious code? Let's start. Today, I'm sitting here with Guillermo Reina. Guillermo is a venture capital investor and the founder of Motor Heroes, the leading European auction platform to buy and sell enthusiast cars, backed by known investment firm Deliros Capital. Prior to that, Guillermo served more than nine years as senior corporate finance manager at Berlin-based venture developer Rocket Internet and as investor at Rocket Internet investment firm Global Founders Capital, where he focused on investment in Italy. Welcome to the podcast, Guillermo. Glad to have you here. Glad to be here. Guillermo, we know each other for many years now. And if I had to think of a finance go-to person, I will come to you, as I already did in the past. You have, yeah. Numbers and analytics are your breakfast, lunch, and maybe even dinner, you could say. So after years of investing in early stage startups for investment funds... What were the steps that made you decide to shift to the other side of the table and become a founder yourself? I've been in VC for a long while. I understand the dynamics of how to launch adventures. I've seen it a thousand times, but always from a passive point of view, never as an entrepreneur first hand. Besides that, I've spent a lot of time at Rocket and especially in a very specific role at Rocket that was the one of the investment manager for the whole incubation portfolio. Now, with that, I've had pretty much three years of exposure to all the data and all the development of 100 plus companies over the three years I've covered that position. And I've seen every single data point that these companies were producing, and not only the ones that they were reporting to the investors, because again, Rocket was more than an investor, was the beginning of all those companies, right? That meant big exposure to many companies in the same stage. And not only that, those companies were trying to replicate the business model that was successful first in Europe and then in emerging markets. So always the same model you know, with different flavors all the time. So for example, Zalando was Zappos in Europe. La Moda was Zalando in Russia and so on and so forth. And what I'm doing, so Monster Heroes takes a lot of inspiration from particularly three companies, two in the US, one in the UK. I'm trying to do what Rocket tried to do many times successfully, even more many times not successfully over its whole history. So take a business model that works in the US, adapt it to another market, launch it there. Add to the mix that I really love collector's cars, enthusiast cars, old cars, sports cars. Been like passion ever since I was a kid. 
So I have a little bit of network, a little bit of subject matter expertise, and I, that I was seeing a lot of traction in the US and in the UK. Those four things generated the spark to make me say, I should do this. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned your years of expertise in seeing a lot of startups taking shape and your personal interest in the subject matter of the company. If we go back, do you remember or recall the moment where you, as you said, decided to go for it? And how did it feel? I kind of do. One of the companies that I'm taking inspiration from, I've always seen it from the perspective of the passion. I never actually stopped to think, how does this company work? They got sold to Hearst Media. And that was the beginning of maybe there's something about it. So I started looking at it, forgetting that they're selling cars, but like really looking at the fundamentals, at the revenue model. When I realized how big of a market they had and really what the value proposition towards their customers there, I was like, okay, I need to do this. I think I have the cards. I should do this. I can pinpoint that moment relatively well. How long did this process take overall? I think I didn't follow the standard procedure. First, I built a lot of comfort for myself, comfort around the idea of, is this really working in the US? Yes, no. Could this really work in Europe? Yes, no. Could I, could I do this? Yes, no. Can I find the right partners to do this? Yes, no. Usually what you do is sort of like a scrum. While you do that, you start testing the market for, can I find interest? For me, it was divided into, so at some point I was, I want to do this. And so I'm going to start dedicating my whole day onto finding the team, finding the capital. While I see that for many other founders, they see something while they build their conviction around it, they start looking for the other pieces. I didn't do that because there was a strong incentive that was passion. I, I would love to be in this industry. First, I want to understand it for myself, and then I will shop it around to find the other pieces. Really analyze, understand, try the other services, test it, see how they behave, took a couple of cars, understand what the user flow was, spoke with a couple of people that had bought cars. So there was the spark, love at first sight, but then mobilizing your network, I would say like a couple of weeks. Really, before we had a term sheet from the investors, a team, I would put it into company building. That took something like two months, three months. All right. But the decision to actually found the company was after two weeks of self-assessment. Interesting. So you mentioned some people besides investors, I guess, also advisors got involved into company building and maybe even the idea validation. Yeah, yeah. So who were those people? What was your relationship with them? And why did you go to them to ask for funds or advice? I spoke with honestly, like anybody that could give me even the smallest sliver of value add. I had my conviction. I just wanted to see if my conviction was also outside. I wouldn't want to just be the only one thinking that this makes sense. There were a lot of people from car collectors, right? Because they are the first buyers. At the same time, I tried to go to people that had some connection with incumbents. So I'm not trying to sell something that didn't exist yesterday. 
For example, I wanted to talk to people that had a lot to do with Autoscout, Scout24, former employees, big traders, to understand why they were using that and what they were seeing as a pain point. I always thought that we must have had a strong focus on communication on a specific sector. And this is why the leaders capital, because they usually look at businesses that have a small subset of people. They don't insist on everybody. They don't go for the mass market, but they go for the niche product. Because again, Virginia will never buy a collector's cars. So I don't need to convince her to buy a collector's car. I need to convince the people that are interested in collector's cards to buy them on my platform rather than others and the people that sell them, of course. And then, you know, communication is super important. And that's why I went to a lot of people that have, let's say, clout in the car industry, specifically in the collector's cars. So people that were and are relevant in this industry because I wanted to understand the dynamics of, for example, how do you incentivize Somebody that is super followed on Instagram because of his collector's cars. The guy tends to be rich, right? He's got a car collection. He's not using his labor as the main source of income. So how do we incentivize such a person? Is it equity? Is it cash? Is it branding that they can use? What is it? How do you talk to those people? How do you convince them to do things? How do you make the prices on classic cars? How much discount do you think it exists from, you know, the listings, so the price that you see on the listings on Autoscout to the real market. Because like everybody knows that those prices are not real. Like the, the transactions actually happen below those prices. But is it uh, 5, 10, 15, 20% discount to that price in general? You don't know. How long does it take to sell a car? Some cars, zero days. Some other cars, months. Why? What's the difference? You know, you tend to boil it down on a few questions, a few core questions, and then that question actually branches out in a thousand different questions. But once you have the right guy in front of you, you can handle it. To think about the right guy, you should articulate the problem of not so much launching, but operating such a company. And I tried to get the best people to answer those questions. And how I got there, network. And so this was the process to validate your business idea and seek partners and investors. From the company side, however, you worked on your own. You didn't choose to work with a co-founder. Why is that? I do have hybrid figures between co-founders and early stage investors, as in like, I'm the only one that is 100% operational on the company. Why I chose to do it? Well, you know, at the beginning, I spoke with a guy that I have a high esteem of. It was coming out from an exit. It was becoming available very soon. And I was thinking of bringing him on as a co-founder. In the end, I decided not to. So we, in the end, like didn't materialize, even though it's not because I don't like the guy, I actually love the guy. What was it then? I guess it's a little bit like a love story. It's not so much, you know, the prenup that makes or breaks a love story. It's just the, the traction that you get at the beginning, right? If you're going at the same pace, you will find the right balance. That would be a love story. If somehow you're not at the same step, it will just not materialize, even though like on paper, the couple was perfect. I guess it was a little bit like that. So I felt I could go faster without him. And, you know, we were very similar. What's really the point to have two guys that are exactly the same at the beginning? I would have preferred something complementary to me. So the yin and the yang. I've always thought you should find a character that matches yours and counterbalances yours. Otherwise, you give too much of an imprint to the company. Mm -hmm. 
if it's two different types of doing things, then it might be good. If it's just one type of doing things doubled, compound, I'm not sure it's good because then everything really takes the shape of one mind. It shouldn't be like that. Finding a co-founder is super helpful, super important if you want. But at the same time, if you have like a less than perfect match, it's better to be alone. Even though, again, one guy is not complete. Two guys might be complete. Three guys might be complete. Four guys, maybe it's too many. It really depends also on the business per se. I did consider that in the end it happens that I didn't do it. The love story didn't work out. Exactly. <laughs> what I hear out of this is your way of approaching this process of this choice is, if anything, quite analytical. So in the beginning, even you thought about the person you mentioned before that had just come out of an exit and you had the highest team of, and it was the first person that came to your mind or the one that crystallized out of your choices. But then after a more thorough assessment, you realized that you were quite similar. So you assessed the situation quite analytically then. Well, yeah, that's me. I am like, I know, like, I can't, uh, I can't, you know, argue. I think, I think it's like this. Yeah. You're a number guy, but still, you mentioned a few of the investors of the company are involved in some operational roles as well. Yeah. So in terms of the investors that you took on board, what did you, or what do you still look for? In general, at different stages, you need different investors. We used to comparing the company to the stages of development of a child. There's a strong message in it. You can't have one teacher for a kid from, you know, when he's free to when he's 18. There must be different people or better. You can have actually, if you want, like you can have one teacher from free to 18, like a single investor from the super early stage to the IPO or whatever to the exit. You can. But this is not how VCs usually works. You tend to have a lot of specialization, even on the investor side. So what you're looking for at the beginning is completely different from what you're looking for after two, three years. So it's very much a work in progress. At the beginning, it's not so much the capital that you raise also because we're talking about relatively little capital at the beginning, but more about the support and the environment that they can create around the founders. So this is what I was looking for. In my case, specifically, people that were into collector's cars. When you insist on a small community like this, you can grow just by pure performance marketing. You're not Zalando trying to sell shoes and everybody's got shoes. Most of the people out there, they can't be my customer because they don't care about collector's cars. They just see them as cars and cars that are old. So when you're in a little community, you need to have some standing, you need to have brand equity, you need to have uh, clout, what I just simply call clout. And having those people, of course, helps yeah, a lot. Makes sense. How did you use your previous experience of being an investor in early stage startups in the negotiation with the investors? So I, I would say this at a large VC fund, that type of behavior that we would have in a negotiation will be completely different from the one that angels or private investors tend to have. So I wouldn't say that I found myself on the other side of the table. I found people that were thinking and negotiating in different ways. 
the most relevant part, especially in the negotiation, was more than the investors, I could handle the lawyers really well. You know, the, the objective is always to get a contract that is satisfying for everybody. But I know exactly how that contract looks like. They're all the same. Not a lot of invention to be had there. So I think that has been extremely helpful. With the investors, again, they didn't have exactly the same mentality that I would have had. Of course, I knew a couple of traits that founders and investors tend to use in the negotiation, but I don't think it helped that much, to be honest. Like, I wouldn't recommend to somebody that wants to start a company to be an early stage investor before. It's not the best use of your time for that. Hmm, that's interesting. But then you just used your people knowledge to understand how they think. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, my previous job has taught me, or better, has improved my way of understanding people at a negotiating table. But at the same time, this happens in a thousand other jobs. It's not like it's a specific prerogative of being an early stage investor. You must have a little bit of that, but you must have a little bit of that in every negotiation. Like when you buy a house, you, you need to have exactly that, right? It's like playing poker. You need to know when to leave the table, when to raise the stakes, when to be angry, when to be nice and flattering. And I did have that experience, yeah, but not an extremely strong advantage. Okay. So being a rather analytical thinker, how would you describe how you read people? Is there something you look at specifically? I strongly believe in incentives. If somebody does something, it's always because he has an interest in doing that, which doesn't mean he's selfish. Nobody does automatically something that hurts them, right? So maybe it can be that it hurts them a little bit, but it gives something else. For example, volunteering. You volunteer and like technically you're not getting money and you're performing work. So you might say this is not rational. No, this is extremely rational because you value how you live with yourself, your ethical standing. You value comparatively more than the money that you could get for that time. So you do volunteer. It's a very narrow perspective. I understand what, when I'm negotiating with people, I tend to think about what the other guy wants, how he might behave as a consequence of what he wants. This is the analytical part, I think. It's complicated, it's extremely fluid, but I tend to start from there. What do you want out of this? And I try to walk back to how you're going to behave to achieve what you want. Sounds like there is a lot going on in your mind when you think about these processes, but it's not necessarily something that you talk about, right? It's more like a subliminal kind of information. I'm talking about understanding what the other person has out of the deal or might be interested in how to incentivize them. There are certain times where you can expect the other side to be fully open. I don't want to say honest, as in if you think at the table the guy is behaving not in an honest way, I think you should move away from that table to begin with. Because somebody that wants to behave dishonestly, he will always find a way. So let's take that example. I'm thinking you probably had the situation at least once in your career thus far. Yeah. So how did you assess that and how could you be sure about it? I think you can never be fully sure. My dogma in a way is if the situation smells too much, just walk away. Usually it's not worth the risk. If you think that the other side is fishy or is behaving dishonestly or, you know, is trying to rip you off, just walk away. Somebody that would behave dishonestly now how can you make sure that it won't be dishonestly tomorrow? And so given that here we're talking about creating a company that is not something that you do 
overnight. It's like long-term relationships that you're trying to build. Somebody where you have doubts about that, I don't think you can save him. Say, I know, but it's so helpful. No, it's not that helpful because again, he's behaving dishonestly. Now I will turn into a follow-up question. So maybe it's more clear. Okay. So imagine a situation or maybe you had this scenario even in real life uh, mm-hmm. where everything sounds or, or looks honest and the way it should be on paper, but you have the sensation and the feeling this person is dishonest or fishy or something is just not quite right. Where do you think, where would you say this feeling comes from and where does it manifest for you? That sounds a situation where like I will make the wrong decision, honestly. You know, like I don't think you usually have the feeling. I think there's more than a feeling. There's some proof slash evidence of moral hazard on the other side or again, dishonesty. It did happen to me. Even on Motor Heroes, there was this party that was extremely interested and it turned out to be, I don't know, there was something way too fishy for my taste. And so we just broke relationships. There was a weird smell, let's say, from day one. And that came from things they said. You're not the first one founding a company, right? A thousand companies being founded every day. Many companies that are being backed by investors that proceed every day. So again, it's very difficult that you're reinventing the wheel, right? Your product might be reinventing the wheel, but the company per se, building a company is not reinventing the wheel. The product might be. In that, maybe my experience seeing so many early stage companies, maybe that has helped me because that gave me a standard of how those negotiations should go. So there's a clear path of what the investor should want, what the founders are willing to give. You may deviate a little bit from that, but like it's a relatively clear and straight path. And so when these guys came and they were not on the path, they were super far away from that. There was like, and smelling something fishy. Why are they behaving like this? You know, it's always something that in theory should should be good for you. It's never something that is good for them. That's how frauds and, and dishonesty usually works. They lure you into accepting something because you think it's so great and then it's not that great. My experience as an investor also helped because as an investor, you always try to ask questions. You always try to dig deeper into something, especially when you're trying to understand the business or when you're doing a DD, a due diligence. You're just digging deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into something that is not clear for you until you get out and you say, now I understand and now I have some comfort. With these guys, I started going deeper and deeper and deeper until I could build my comfort around them. I couldn't. And so I said, bye-bye. Very simply. Okay. And this feeling then for you kind of stemmed from an abnormality of the pattern that you had seen throughout your experience then? Yeah. Yeah. Very simply. You always regulate in the contracts how much the founder is going to get for himself. Investors tend to think about what the founders will leave for them. The founder will want to have as much as possible. So there's always like the little bit of tension between the two. But again, there's regular scenarios, let's say. So for example, I don't know, at Proceed, it's normal that the founder has more than the majority of the company. So the investors that they might have at 20%, 25%, 15%, not 70% of the company. This is not dishonesty. This is just an investor that doesn't understand this is the market standard. 
But at the same time, an investor that says, I want 0.1%, this is not not understanding the market standard. This is like, why are you offering me this much? The founder should get enough that he can leave and he can maintain a decent lifestyle. He shouldn't get what he can get like at an investment bank, consulting job and whatever. You should feel the pressure a little bit. But at the same time, you should be aware of a founder that says, I want 200,000 euros as compensation. This is also not good. It's not your money and you have to build things. Like you need to have, you know, the pressure and the, and the, and the grit to actually build it. So just an example, like before, an investor that says to the founder, you're only going to get 2,000. This is not dishonesty. This is somebody that doesn't understand the dynamics. But an investor that says to the founder, you can get as much compensation as you want. No, you usually don't do it like this. And right, it's on paper, it's good for the founder. It looks like you found the right partners. It turns out they're just trying to lure you into something. There, there might be dishonesty. Is this enough to say that it's dishonesty? I would say it's enough to say these people don't understand the market dynamics, so you shouldn't partner up with them. So you describe the process and you try to get yourself into a comfortable situation. And when you realize that you couldn't do it, you decided to get out of this negotiation. Would you say it was more of very clear to explain and verbalize a realization? Or was it more of, um, I just don't feel comfortable? I cannot really... You already verbalized it. You said it's just too good to be true so someone doesn't understand the market. But in terms of, okay, what is it really that could be fishy here? Did you try to understand that? Of course you try, right? I mean, it's curiosity. Also to understand the pattern. For example, what I said before, the investor will try to get your compensation down to nothing so that you preserve this investment, right? So that the money stays in the company. This pattern is due to what? Well, it's due to the fact that the investor wants, you know, the highest return. Now, it might be right, it might be wrong, it might be, you know, short-sighted, long-sighted, but this is what it's trying to achieve. So you have clear what it's trying to achieve, you understand why it's behaving in a certain way, you know exactly what it's going to do, so you know how to counter-argue with respect to that. So when you get a weird behavior like that, that, again, seems fraudulent, seems there's, again, something that you don't understand, it. maybe because I'm so analytical, I don't know. It was natural for me just to try under to understand what was behind it because at some point I was like, there's something that doesn't that doesn't just fit very well. I don't understand it. I want to understand what's behind it. So next time somebody will behave in the way that this guy behaved, I'm gonna know, well, there's most likely this thing going on behind it. Because you've seen something weird and you might as well learn from it. Again, curiosity. We can build a big definition around it is curiosity. So you mentioned there is something that felt just not fitting into the picture. Yeah. Given this statement, what do you think is intuition? It's like something very connected to seeking patterns. For example, animals have intuition, right? The intuition of the gazelle seeing that there is a lion in the woods. The intuition is subliminally the gazelle felt there's something weird, right? What's the something weird? She might have spotted like a, an ear. She didn't understand it's an ear. She saw something that doesn't really fit. There's something that is different from before. In that sense, again, it's seeking patterns into the environment, if you want. Maybe it's just that. To me, again, in this very specific case, 
that was intuition. There was something odd. The way the guy was behaving, the promises he was making, the offers he was making. If you say intuition with respect to one of the first questions, like why I decided to do what I'm doing, I think it's different there. Maybe they're not the same type of intuition. There was Eureka type of thing, right? The aha moment. The aha moment, exactly, where you realize that two plus two is equal to four. You're like, ah, I didn't think about that. That's a different type of intuition. Here, intuition is more, I'm used to a certain thing. Any deviation from that is worth of deeper exploring, deeper analysis. And whether you find something or not, you know, that's the analysis that comes later. Are we using the same word for the two of them? I don't know. I'm questioning it. Maybe we shouldn't. Well, there are definitely different types of intuition in different uh, situations, as you rightly okay. <laughs> mentioned. And in this case, it's, uh, it's two different types of intuition, at least at the current state of research. So in these two different kinds, do you think, in your experience, you listen to them in a different way? So if you had to place in your body where you feel it, where will it be in both scenarios? I don't know. From the way you asked the question, it seems to me like you're connecting it to an emotion. Like I remember the two moments specifically, right? The first moment of I should do this. Yeah, there was definitely excitement. Yeah, I was like, this is actually something that can be done. And the second moment of I don't like this guy. This is not how it's supposed to be. Why is he behaving like this? I can't remember exactly the emotions in the two cases, so I would say, I don't know, the mind, the head, that's where I felt them. After the first intuition, so of, I should do this. If I have to think about myself, I definitely was euphoric, excited about the future. I was like, this is a purpose. This is meaningful. What I want to do, what this could be. In the second case, I must have been super wary, introvert, thinking about it, just having my mind running, trying to understand what was going on. In the second case, there was like a negative effect on my mood. You don't understand, you're lost. You need to figure out things. And while in the first case, I needed to figure out a ton of things, right? As we said, there were two months of just like asking questions and trying to get answers, but that was with a positive mood. Everything I get is value creating for me because like, even if they give me, somebody told me, no, this idea is stupid. You shouldn't do it. It's still positive, right? Because it means I know the direction. In the second case, it was, I could only see the downside of just asking questions. I could only see that the fact that I wouldn't get the answer that was good. I would get the answer that was bad because there was something inside of me saying something is weird. I don't know where in the body this was, but this is the two feelings I've had. It's known that emotions can often bias the judgment. As you mentioned, positive emotions can facilitate or even cloud our judgment, as in we see everything as positive and maybe risk to fall in love with the idea or the, the prospect, whereas negative emotions may inhibit and yes, even, even lead maybe to the wrong judgment just because we, we are biased. In both cases, actually. So how do you personally filter self-created narratives or, or this cognitive bias? How do you assess them and try to actually objectively understand what's going on if it's just your bias judgment or whether there is truth to that? If I knew I wouldn't be biased, right? If I knew precisely how to do it. Now, I think you can only moderate it 
to a certain extent, and I'm not even sure to what extent. The way I try to moderate it is just try to listen to what the rest of the people say at some point. You might have a strong conviction, and it's important to have strong conviction on things. At the same time, if everybody is giving you a certain signal, you really need to reassess how good you are, how more right you are on a certain thing compared to everybody else. If it's 50-50, you can be on one side or the other, and it doesn't really say that you're more right or wrong. If you are super contrarian to what everybody's saying, you might be biased, you might be strongly biased, or you might be extremely right. You don't know. How you moderate it, again, just try to get other people's perspective. If I'm thinking that maybe I'm too much convinced of a certain idea, it's good to talk with experts in that area, but it's also good to talk to people that are not really experts in that area. For example, the feedback that car traders give me on certain things about the platform, right? So the platform, you might think the user experience and the user interface, you might want, you know, this product guys to look at it. Sometimes it's also good to go to the car trader that, you know, has never opened a website in his life because like he can give you like a completely different perspective that might reduce your bias. Sometimes it's self-evident or <laughs> you think you are on the right side and you won't move. Some other times you might reconsider and actually change your bias. In the very fact that you said, I'm very analytical, that's a bias. I'm biased, analytical, so I will tend to always try to get the things as squared as possible. Sometimes they can't be squared, they will be fuzzy. Being analytical doesn't help in that. It's a bias that I have. I can only seek other people's opinion. That's the only thing I could do. And try to reassess once in a while. Again, I don't pretend that I have a solution for that. I I, I don't really. <laughs> In my experience as an entrepreneur, there's a lot of opinions. I started with my own opinion. It turns out that I might be biased. I might be biased by a certain way of doing things. That is, try to do what the biggest player is doing. Sometimes the answer is completely different from that. Sometimes you have to innovate. But I have the bias to take inspiration rather than create something radically new. Sometimes it's a good bias. Sometimes it's a bad bias. Now I'm realizing it more and more that by default... My mind will steer to that. I can't avoid it. Sometimes I can just try to look at the compass and say, is it really right? Can we maybe innovate on this? At the same time, I can't change myself too much. So that's why also having somebody that has a completely different perspective from you on, on some issues can be helpful, but it won't be 100% solve this problem. It would always be lingering there. <laughs> it's also important to know our strengths and limitations, right? Yeah, the problem is I don't know where the limits are. I know that there are there. I know that I've taken wrong decisions and I will take wrong decisions in the future. I guess bias, the only thing you can do is be aware that it exists, question yourself sometimes, try to get cross-references from other people around you, people that you perceive the right, people that you perceive the wrong, and just, again, reassess once in a while. You will never get it right or better. You will not get it right all the times, but once in a while. Makes sense. Okay, so I think this is the perfect conclusive statement. I will end this interesting conversation with three fast questions that you need to answer out of uh, your gut. Okay. <laughs> so what is the life experience that taught you the most or that you're most proud of thus far? Moving to a city where I don't know anybody. 
starting and you know nobody knows you so you're not coming with some objective connected to you be it positive or negative right so you don't have the negative ones and so that's good because you're free to reshape yourself if you want but you're also don't have the positive ones you have like a clean sleep to just let the people form an opinion of you without any bias we can talk about it that way so moving to a city where honestly i didn't know anybody that was extremely formative because again i wouldn't have any excuse for anything and i wouldn't have any privilege for the positive thing i would just i'm good at something i have to prove it that was good that was good i don't know how often you can do it that time was good i will say the same for me if someone asks me this question okay <laughs> so what is the one episode in your career that you will do differently if you go go back to this exact same situation but with the knowledge of today you know with, with hindsight i mean there's so many things that i would have done different maybe i think i was ready to take more risk on myself at a previous time that i've actually done it i've always thought i wasn't ready but then when i thought i was ready looking back i was like maybe i've been ready for a while and i just didn't see it so maybe there's that just you know being more conscious about what's what's my limit limits in risk tolerance yeah fixing the mistakes that i've done you know a thousand a thousand unfortunately but that's good you had a lot to learn from exactly exactly <laughs> And last question, did you ever do something completely irrational in your career or in your private life? And what was it? I'm not sure what completely irrational means. When I graduated from Bocconi, I was supposed to go to Stockholm to study for my master's. Then whatever, there was like a hiccup in administrative process at Bocconi. I couldn't go, you know, right after the bachelor. So I ended up in Berlin. Nilly Willy, without knowing anybody, just talked to this guy from a super little fund. I spoke with him twice on the phone and he was like, yeah, come to Berlin. And I said, fine, I'll come to Berlin. But then nine months later, I had to reapply for Stockholm. I mean, I had like my place already reserved, but I had to, you know, resubmit all the forms. And there I decided not to do it. I didn't even decide not to do it. It was more like I subconsciously let the deadline pass. And I was like, maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow. Oh yeah, that was yesterday. Zero knowledge really about what was going on around me. But there I was like, stay at Rocket, stay in Berlin. I don't know if it was irrational. I, definitely I can say I didn't think it through perfectly. I was just like, let's just do it. Let's just stay another year. And then, you know, next year, other projects, the IPO. That year, I didn't even know when the deadline to apply to Stockholm was. I was like, it's gone. I'm not doing it. Well, I'm very glad you did because then we met. <laughs> then we met. That's true. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. It was uh, very insightful. It has been fun. Likewise. Thank you for listening. I'm hoping you could find these insights useful in your next negotiation. If you want to help me grow, subscribe to the podcast and drop five stars. And join me in the next episode on October 30th. The hot topic, finding your purpose career. Are you ready to crack the subconscious code? See you soon. <laughs>